The little courtroom at the Bluestone City Morgue was crowded on that Friday morning in November 1929. Its doors shut fast to quieten the din of Melbourne's rail yards and tram traffic and to keep out the 30 degree heat working its way through the room. The 1880s building was shabby, dark and dismal. The courtroom was cramped and airless. Yet despite this oppressive atmosphere, the crowd was abuzz with gossip about what the inquest into Norman MacLeod's death might reveal. Every seat was taken, and for latecomers, it was standing room only. The opportunity for a glimpse into the well-guarded private lives of Melbourne's elite was just too good to resist. Against the noisy backdrop of city life, people craned their necks to listen, eyes fixed on each witness in turn. Just near the coroner's bench sat Norma's mother, Edith MacLeod. In front of the heated gathering, the weight of recent events sat squarely on her shoulders. She faltered as she spoke. By the end of her cross-examination, her composure was gone. Edith desperately denied claims she'd fought with her daughter. Sitting in the packed room, she sobbed loudly. <laughs> daughter was all world to me. She buried her face in her hands and a dead silence fell across the court. Welcome to Murder Archives, where we re-examine mysterious deaths, reimagine private lives and give voice to long-forgotten victims of crime. We're on episode three of Fractured Silence, the death of Norma Reese McLeod. From episodes one and two, you'll know that Norma's death was no accident. The crack in her skull was just too severe. At first, an attack by a surprise burglar seemed plausible, but with what we now know, unlikely. The idea of a thief hitting Norma with such force and then taking time to get her on her bed just didn't seem plausible. Neither is the idea of her getting herself to bed. If this is the first episode you're listening to, it's worth going back to episode one just to get up to speed. I'm Emma Curtin, and in this episode, we're going to examine the police focus on their prime suspect, Norma's mother, Edith MacLeod. We've added links in the episode description, and you can find more information on our website, murderarchives.com.au. This includes inquest documents and the full text of the anonymous letter that was central to the police case. And if you think of something I've missed or want to suggest an alternate theory, email me your thoughts. Emma at murderarchives.com.au When I first began investigating Norma's death, I'd read nothing but the newspaper articles. And while it was never stated that Mrs MacLeod was suspected, I was swayed by police insinuations in the press accounts. Detectives had told journalists they thought Mrs MacLeod could assist them in some details of the tragedy. Often acknowledged today as a tell, the subject was really a suspect. Yes, I admit at this point I believed Mrs MacLeod must have killed Norma. But the idea that she'd killed her daughter didn't really trouble me. This was all just a story. I was only interested in the puzzle. I hadn't at this stage made any connection to the family 
or had a sense of Norma herself. That was all yet to come. Without yet questioning whether Mrs MacLeod was guilty or not, I wanted to know what reason the police had for their suspicions, beyond the fact that she'd been the first one to find Norma. I know from retired detective Charlie Bazina that the person who found the body is still the starting point for any murder investigation. But there must have been something else that made the police focus on Edith MacLeod. There was. That anonymous letter I kept reading about. Only one day after Norma's death, Superintendent Walsh, the Chief of the Criminal Investigation Branch, received a handwritten letter signed with the pseudonym Asmodeus. Two more letters from the same writer would follow. The police considered these significant. However, it was not until a month after Norma's death that the press learned about police interest in this anonymous letter writer. Walsh told journalists, Little importance was attached when it was first received, but it is now regarded by the police as likely to provide a clue to the death of Miss Norma MacLeod. Three things struck me. Why had the anonymous letter writer only now been taken seriously, a month after Norma's death? Why were police now telling the press about it? And what did the letter say that was so incriminating? The first point. A month after Norma's death, Senior Detective Lee had told journalists that they had exhausted all lines of inquiry except the anonymous letter. They were returning to it. But had they really exhausted every line of inquiry? To the second point. The police now needed the journalist's help to appeal to the letter writer to come forward. And to the third point, at no time did the police tell the press what was actually in the anonymous letter. All they revealed was that the handwriting and language suggested it was written by a well-educated man and that the pseudonym was significant. Naturally, I googled Asmodeus and discovered various descriptions. Evil spirit, king of the demons, demon of lust and a fallen angel from Milton's Paradise Lost. The 1929 press definitions of Asmodeus shifted from evil spirit of the underworld to destroyer of domestic bliss and then to demon of anger and lust. One journalist from The Age noted that in a work by the French novelist Lesage, Asmodeus had the power to lift roofs off to look into the private lives of those underneath. All of these suggestions were wonderfully creative, given that reporters still had no idea what was in the letter. What did any of these definitions have to do with Norma? Was the anonymous letter writer a demon? Or was he pointing to Edith MacLeod as the demon? Or was he simply saying that he was lifting off the roof of the MacLeod's private life? This letter had to have all the answers. I needed to find it. The hunt began. I'd assumed that any police records would be at the Public Records Office of Victoria, so that's where I started. It's a treasure trove for anyone looking into Victoria's told or untold stories. I searched through the database, discovering there were 44 archive boxes of police correspondence for 1929 alone. My heart sank a little at the thought of all that paper, but the obsession over this case had already kicked in and I couldn't stop now. Days of trawling through mountains of ageing paper, I began to wonder whether the files I wanted existed at all. But I kept going. 
If you've ever done any research, you'll understand that moment when you find something relevant to your project. However small, it just gives you such a buzz. I still remember that day in July 2015, when searching through dozens of boxes of dusty police correspondence and almost giving up, there in the middle of my last box for the day was a bundle curiously tied up with pink string. It was the only box in the file tied that way. I edged it out carefully until the label was visible. Two words, Norma MacLeod on the front page of the package. It was a real yippee moment and I wanted to yell out with excitement, but I didn't think that would be appreciated in the quiet of the reading room. The bundle contained the official police reports, witness statements, outlines of proposed questions and a pile of letters sent from members of the public. I'll get to the rest of the papers later, but for now I want to focus on the Asmodeus letter because it was so pivotal to the police focus. In the papers, I read the note explaining the meaning of Asmodeus as far as the police understood it. Asmodeus, Hebrew, derived from the word Samed, meaning to destroy. Jewish demonology, a destroying demon. In the book of Tobit, he is said to have loved Sarah and to have destroyed in succession her seven husbands, appearing as a succubus on their bridal nights. Hence, he is jocularly described as being a destroyer of domestic happiness. Was it the idea of the destroyer of domestic happiness that police latched onto? And did the letter give details of how the murder occurred, as suggested in the newspapers? Asmodeus's first letter was handwritten in pencil, and it struck me as messy and written in a hurry. It didn't present the stylish hand I'd expected of the well-educated man described by police. The contents were also not what I'd expected. To me, it presented more conjecture than fact. Why had police given this letter more weight than the dozens of others they'd received? Anyway, I'd found the letter and I can't tell you how excited I was at the thought of reading it. I read it immediately. Two or three times every week for my health's sake, I take a four or five mile walk. Yesterday, Monday afternoon, I walked from Malvern to Toorak Railway Station, thence along Beatty Avenue and turned north into Mandeville Crescent looked over the grounds of the convent, then crossed over to the bowling green. While standing alongside of the green, I overheard two women arguing and disputing in a room at the back of the left-hand side of the villa alongside of the bowling green. I took no notice and continued my walk to South Yarra Station. When I saw the Herald this afternoon and saw the account of Mr. McLeod's death, I thought, this is the house in which I heard the voices. I entered Mandeville Crescent about 2.30pm and feel certain that no one came out or went in to that house between that and three o'clock. Ask Mrs. MacLeod if she saw an old gentleman between half-past two and three o'clock yesterday, Monday, walking up towards Malvern Road, and he carried a stick in his hand. Theory. Mrs. MacLeod may be quick-tempered, had a quarrel with her daughter, in the heat of the moment, struck her on the head with some heavy flat instrument, smoothing iron. Then she then lifted Norma up on the bed and bandaged her head with her brother's underpants. I feel certain that none but Mrs. MacLeod entered that villa alongside the bowling green between half-past two and three o'clock. I saw no one about during that time. Of course, Miss MacLeod may have been troublesome and obstinate. Was she Virgo intacto? And who was this Asmodeus guy? This remains one of the most frustrating, unanswered questions in this case. 
The public made suggestions as to who he might be, some naming names. These included a psychic, a car salesman, a journalist and a rent collector, all of whom were discounted by police. One newspaper account reported that friends of Miss MacLeod believed that the writer could be one of four people. But annoyingly, who these four people were was never stated. A reporter in the Herald wrote that police believed the writer was probably a relative or an intimate acquaintance of Norma's. One anonymous writer suggested that Asmodeus was a retired schoolmaster called J.G. David of Canterbury, a Melbourne suburb not far from Turak. I did a little digging and found that this was John Gomer David, who just happened to be Norman MacLeod's brother-in-law. But if it were him, what would be his motivation for wanting to send that letter? Did he really know something, but not want it known that he was making the accusation? Or did he simply dislike his brother-in-law's family? Sadly, there's no indication as to whether Mr David was even interviewed by the police. Interestingly, one letter writer and one anonymous phone caller both suggested that Asmodeus was a man called Dunn. This guy became an absolute fascination for me, and he certainly knew Norma. But more of him in the next episode. So did Asmodeus have a motive for writing the letter? Perhaps an axe to grind? Was he known to the family? Or was he simply what he said he was, a passerby who happened to hear shouting in the house where a mysterious death had occurred? I asked a forensic psychophysiologist to look at the letter content through a process called scientific content analysis, or SCAN. Police often use this technique to determine the authenticity of verbal or written communication. What the SCAN report suggested was that Asmodeus may well have known more than he was saying and could have been withholding information. The letter also implied a level of familiarity with the victim, indicated by his use of her first name, Norma, as opposed to Miss MacLeod. Was Asmodeus a member of the family or somehow involved in the incident? I continue to wonder. I can't tell you how many times I've read this letter in the last couple of years, but it was only a couple of months ago that retired homicide detective Charlie Bazina made a point that I felt so stupid for not having picked up. Charlie simply said, Why was this guy standing there for half an hour watching the house when he said that he hadn't taken much notice? This was a great point and reminded me again about how much can be learnt by simply discussing this case. It also made me wonder even more about whether Asmodeus was as detached from the case as he suggested. Anyway, putting Asmodeus aside for now, there were other letters that also pointed the finger at Edith MacLeod. The day after Asmodeus' first letter arrived... Mary Abbott, a chemical manufacturer living in Paran, sent one of her own to police. Perhaps Mrs MacLeod, overcome with sudden and spasmodic fit of insanity, probably seized iron and delivered the fatal blow. Then sanity probably returned, after the one terrible act. Then she rushed for the underpants of her son, damped them and then pressed them around her daughter's head and carried her to bed. Mary suggested that police check into Mrs MacLeod's ancestry to determine whether there was an insane streak. Whether Lee and Simpson did check that or not, I don't know, but I did, and I couldn't find anything to indicate some sort of inherited madness. 
Other writers implied a more intimate knowledge of the MacLeod family, but were not willing to put their names to their accusations. It is generally thought and said that the mother, Mrs MacLeod, killed her daughter accidentally. They were always fighting. On similar lines, another writer sent two short notes to Superintendent Walsh, claiming Edith as the culprit. The reason they provided for the attack, however, was a little cryptic. No anonymous letters necessary over MacLeod affair. Mother and daughter hated each other. All men who visited the house were cultured. Four people know the MacLeod secret. Why not tell the public that Norma Mick was a walking skeleton? Mother plus son plus hatred. What did cultured men coming into the house imply? And why mention Norma's physique? Did this relate to Norma's private life, which might be seen as a motive for an attack? So far, we've only focused on Norma's death, but in the next episode, we'll be talking about Norma's life. Was the writer pointing at some cultured man who might have knowledge of the case? Was this an implicit suggestion that the educated Asmodeus was one of those cultured visitors? Another letter from someone signing themselves XMS with a much angrier tone said Mrs MacLeod was a hot-tempered woman. They also accused the police of not giving Edith the third degree because the MacLeods were well-to-do people. Keep her in the chair for two or three hours like you do the others and see what she has to say. Everything I'd read to date pointed to Edith and I began to develop an impression of the woman that was obviously intended. It really was the case of the old adage, if enough dirt is thrown, some will stick. The inquest into Norma's death would sharpen the focus on Edith in several ways. Questioning her sanity, the statement of her movements on the faithful day, and her relationship with her daughter. The public was promised startling disclosures. The inquest into Norma's death, held on Friday the 1st of November 1929, was presided over by the city coroner, 58-year-old David Grant. Twelve witnesses would appear in court. Exhibits were also presented. These were the cricket bat, a drawn layout of Mandible Crescent House and the route Edith said she had taken on that Monday afternoon, the woolen underpants found on Norma's forehead, and photographs of the crime scene. To my frustration, only the plans of the house and Edith's route are still in the inquest file. Asmodeus probably sat among the spectators that day. He'd sent Superintendent Walsh a note stating that he would attend. But if he was there, he remained just a face in the crowd. I wondered how he might have responded to the gravity of the situation, partly created by his own hand. Was he pleased or anxious, burdened by the importance attached to his own anonymous testimony or thrilled by his handiwork? According to the press at the inquest, Mr MacLeod showed natural signs of nervous strain and Mrs MacLeod's manner throughout was dignified and self-possessed. An assessment of Mrs MacLeod's character and mental well-being was central to the detective's conclusions. They drew on early statements taken soon after Norma's death. Apparently, Dr Thwaites had initially stated, I've attended Mrs MacLeod at various times. I would say she is somewhat eccentric. In the same handwriting, notes were taken from a statement by Dr Davis, who apparently agreed, saying, I've also attended her mother, Mrs MacLeod, who I think is an eccentric woman. 
It seemed odd to me that both men would offer a statement about Edith's apparently unconventional behaviour, both using the word eccentric. I doubt they would have done so without some prompting from Detective Lee. Was he driving his own agenda? However, at the inquest, Dr Thwaites denied having used the word eccentric. He declared before the coroner, with excessive repetition and with some apparent memory loss, I would not say she is eccentric in any way. She is deaf. That is the unfortunate part. Apart from that, I have never seen any sign of eccentricity. I do not think I told Detective Lee I regarded her as eccentric. I said that when she came up to me, she was very excited. She was wringing her hands naturally, of course, with the girl lying there. I do not think I have told Detective Lee that I think she was an eccentric sort of woman. Asked if he swears today that I did say so, I will contradict him. I say I do not think I told him she was eccentric. She was deaf, but I would not say she was eccentric. Police had also prepared the questions, Do you know if she's passed the change of life? And are some women subject to fits of violence when they are in the change of life? Although I couldn't find any record of whether these questions were asked or not, the fact that they were considered raises an interesting point about the social context. Mrs MacLeod was 61 at the time of Norma's death and would, I imagine, already have been through menopause, commonly known as the change of life. But why ask such questions? The association between insanity and a woman's reproductive system had long been held. The term hysteria comes from the Greek word hysteris, meaning womb. The associations between menopause and madness were obviously still lingering even as late as the 1920s, and this was presumably the connection the police were trying to make with Edith MacLeod. Another question prepared for Mr MacLeod was, would it be true if it was said that your wife has come to the bowling green in a fit of temper and taken you out by the ear? Again, the suggestion here is that Mrs MacLeod had a temper, but where did this tidbit come from? There's no indication of statements taken from the Bowls Club, at least not in the records I found. Was this something Superintendent Walsh, who happened to play at the Turak Bowls Club, had himself witnessed or simply gossip? The police also wanted to know if witnesses thought that Mrs McLeod was a strong woman, presumably to determine whether she could have attacked Norma. As mentioned in the last episode, the weapon causing Norma's death was now thought to be a cricket bat, which detectives had found at the MacLeod home. However, there was no record of whether it had been checked for fingerprints. Senior Detective Lee testified at the inquest that the cricket bat had been found on the evening of the crime in the box room, standing in the corner between the window and the door. A report from the Sun News Pictorial, however, stated that a search had been made for a weapon but none was found. Was this just a case of the police keeping their cards close to their chest, or had Detective Lee rewritten history to suit his needs? Why a cricket bat had been taken as the instrument of choice, as opposed to all other potential weapons, is also not made clear in the evidence, apart from the fact that it fit the description of a broad, flat surface as identified by the pathologist. The cricket bat produced could have caused the blow and the injury would have more likely have been caused by a blow from the bat than from a brick. You might remember that a brick had been initially suggested as a possible weapon. Questions in the police files indicated that the detectives wanted to know whether a woman, taller than Norma, 
could have caused the injury with a cricket bat. Again, it's not apparent whether this was asked in court, so it's difficult to know what Mollison's response might have been. However, the fact that Edith was about an inch or two taller than Norma again illustrates the direction the line of questioning was taking. When I asked retired homicide detective Charlie Bazina to look at the case notes, he suggested that Norma may have been hit while sitting on the bed. Well, given the fact that uh, what documents are read to say that she suffered a blow to the top of the head, quite a forceful blow, which uh, no doubt was the uh, cause of death to the brain injury, and uh, you would only can guess through either she fell unconscious and the likes, how significant, how uh, significant was that blow. We looked at the uh, cricket bat, but other um, theories were put up about a, um, a flattening iron and the likes. How does someone get a blow to the top of their head? One of my um, particular thoughts was, was in fact, she's sitting. The, what the crime scene told me, that, that it appears to me that the, the deceased knew who the offender was, mm-hmm. given the fact of the state of the body, no defensive injuries, the shoes at the end of the bed, was she sitting there? And it would uh, lend to my theory that someone's either come up from behind or with a cricket bat, coming from a, a height up above through someone without much strength, the sheer velocity if it was a cricket bat to inflict that injury and, and fracture the skull to that degree and cause the death would lend a lot of um, kudos to that particular theory as opposed to side of the face or the back of the head. The fact that it was at the top, how does someone go up towards someone without defensive injuries and be able to strike someone on the top of the head? Mm. That's the most obvious. But you still keep an open mind. That's one theory you put up until you try and support it or negate it from other evidence. I asked forensic pathologist Byron Collins for his thoughts. I suppose the force would have been applied to the top of the head, somewhat to the right-hand side, and one could conceive of somebody or two individuals standing uh, face-to-face, for example, and a blunt blunt instrument being wielded and it then striking the deceased's head. However, it would be easier if the, the victim was seated to produce that injury but again I don't think that one can say either way and I must confess that in some of the TV programs I'm dumbfounded in the way that they are able to tell you whether they were male or female assailants (laughs) what hand they were and whether they had their eyes closed or not or whatever I think well that's probably where my questioning comes from it's just not that easy so yes it, it certainly could be produced with the deceased sitting down you would still be able to generate a sufficient force whether standing or seated in this particular case. Questions were also raised about the behaviour of Edith and others after finding Norma. The assistant to the coroner, Mr Llewellyn Jones, wanted to know why Mrs McLeod didn't telephone Dr Thwaites instead of going up to his surgery. This also initially struck me as odd. In her defence, Edith had said... I cannot use the phone. I was terrified. I hardly know what I did with Norma lying there unconscious. Her apparent deafness, as noted by the doctors, might also account for her reluctance to use the phone. Or maybe it was something more deep-seated. It seems hard for us to imagine now, but in the 1920s, many people were still frightened of this newfangled technology. And it should be remembered that Edith was obviously in a state regardless of whether she did it or not. The doctor's surgery was also a very short walk from the house. In terms of Mrs McLeod's movements that fateful day, 
The detectives took several avenues in the hope of disproving that Mrs McLeod had been where she said she'd been. If you recall from episode one, Edith had told police she left the house at about 2pm to go shopping and returned home around 2.30pm, although she couldn't be certain of the time. Detectives Lee and Simpson retraced her steps, questioning her neighbours and the employees of the shop she said she'd visited that day. Miss William, the McLeod's neighbour, originally stated to police that around 2pm that day, she and Mrs Guthrie, to whom she was companion nurse, had gone to the front room of their house to have coffee, as they usually did after lunch. The window in this room overlooked the crescent, about six metres from the pavement. According to Miss William, the women stayed there until about 2.30pm. During that time, she said she didn't see Mrs McLeod pass the house. This contradicted Edith's statement about the way she walked to the shops, which would have taken her directly past her neighbour's window. At the inquest, however, Miss William did leave some room for doubt. I was sitting by the window in that room, looking out on the street. I remained there until about half past two, or between a quarter and a half past two. I was not sitting by the window all that time. I was writing some of the time. Could she simply have missed Mrs MacLeod going past? Or was Mrs MacLeod never there? Mrs MacLeod had also stated that she'd left her shopping on the kitchen table when she returned from Morven Road. But Miss William said she'd seen nothing there. She did admit, however, that she hadn't taken much notice, and I think that's quite understandable. I challenge you to go to your neighbour's house and try and remember what was on their kitchen table, even on a normal day. What did the shop assistants have to say about Mrs MacLeod's shopping expedition that day? Two days after the murder, detectives Lee and Simpson had interviewed 15-year-old Ida Reed, employed at Boston's pastry shop in Morven Road. At that time, Ida had said she didn't remember Mrs MacLeod coming to the shop on the 9th of September. In her written testimony presented before the inquest, however, Ida stated that she did remember Mrs MacLeod coming into the shop on that day. Ida also stated that on the second Monday after Norma's death, the 23rd of September, Mrs MacLeod had come into the shop and said, Can you remember what time I was in the shop on Monday of the murder? Mrs MacLeod had brought two men into the shop with her. One was her brother Percy, but it's not clear who the other man was. Ida thought he was a solicitor. He could, however, have been a private detective engaged by Mr MacLeod to investigate the mystery. Just an aside here, Mr MacLeod was certainly questioned about his hiring of a private detective at the inquest, but an objection was sustained, the coroner stating that it wasn't relevant. But it was certainly something that gave me food for thought. Surely Mr MacLeod's friend, Superintendent Walsh, wouldn't have welcomed the involvement of a private detective, whose very presence might suggest that Mr MacLeod had little faith in the police. Private investigators were mistrusted by the police, who resented their use of the word detective. Continuing her testimony, shop assistant Ida Reed said she told the visitors she couldn't remember the time Mrs MacLeod had been in the shop. The men then had a conversation with the shop owner, Mr Boston. When cross-examined, Ida said she'd changed her statement because when the detectives first questioned her, she didn't know Mrs MacLeod by name and they hadn't shown her a photograph. She would later recognise her by sight. 
Now contradicting her written statement, Ida said that Mrs McLeod had come into the shop twice, first around 2pm to buy Madeira cake and then about 2.20pm to buy some paste. But would Ida really have remembered that much detail? Seems unlikely to me. However, whether this simply means she was an impressionable girl or more ominously had been encouraged to make this statement is unknown. 32-year-old Francis Gray, manager of Grimlington's Produce, was the next witness. He said while he knew Mrs McLeod by sight, he hadn't seen her on the 9th of September. Like Ida, Mrs McLeod visited Francis a couple of weeks after the murder. I told her I could not remember her calling. She said if you could remember the exact time that I came in, it would assist me. She had either one or two men with her, but I could not remember her being in the shop. Frederick Hart the butcher was the last shop worker questioned. He said he'd been the only one serving in the shop between 1.20 and 2.45pm. He confirmed that he knew Mrs McLeod as she was a regular customer, but he couldn't recall whether she'd been in the shop that day or not. So this all looked very damning for Edith McLeod. Two out of three shop assistants couldn't confirm that she'd been shopping that day and the testimony of the third was questionable at best. But shops are busy places and customers come and go without necessarily making an impression. Saying they couldn't remember Mrs McLeod being there didn't mean she wasn't there. Nonetheless, the police had undoubtedly developed a theory of Mrs McLeod as the likely killer. Now they needed a motive. Mrs McLeod's relationship with Norma came under scrutiny. When Constable MacDonald went to Mandeville Crescent after the first phone call about Norma's death, he said he heard Mrs MacLeod moaning and sobbing in the front room. For some, this indicated excessive grief. For others, it suggested agonising remorse following a violent quarrel. But if this was the case, did Mrs MacLeod and Norma have a history of quarrelling? Dr Thwaites said at the inquest, I have attended Mr and Mrs MacLeod and the son, Asked whether during any of those occasions I saw anything to suggest the whole family was not well-ordered and a friendly one, I say I saw nothing at all. Miss Gwilliam, while admitting that she only knew the family slightly as neighbours, also believed that they all got on well. Cousin Edith Williams was a little more adamant. I used to meet the family often. I never heard any domestic trouble in the house in any way, not the slightest. As far as I could see on all my visits, there was good feeling and cordiality between all the members of the family. In his initial statement to police, Mr MacLeod said, to the best of his belief, his wife and daughter were on affectionate terms. At the inquest, he was much more resolute, clearly stating that his wife and daughter always got on well. I never saw any friction at all. They were very well disposed towards each other. Despite the anonymous letter, nobody provided any evidence to suggest that there was an issue between mother and daughter. As a distant observer, I questioned the truth or at least the credibility of some of the evidence presented at the inquest. And as reported in The Age, other than insinuations, there was no evidence of a motive that could explain Norma's death. Significant by its absence at the inquest was reference to Asmodeus, the anonymous letter writer. While detectives had pinned their case on his words, he didn't come forward. Without the man himself... His evidence couldn't be used at the inquest. His name was never mentioned and there was only one veiled reference to the matter. In concluding the day's events, 
the coroner called. If there is anyone here knowing the circumstances of this girl's death, I invite him or her to come forward. He waited two minutes, but no one spoke. It's not surprising then that the coroner, finding not enough evidence, felt compelled to return an open verdict. The hopes of a dramatic climax to the Turak mystery fell far short of expectations. Like many of those at the inquest that day, I initially came away from reading all the presented police evidence with the distinct impression that a slightly imbalanced mother had attacked her daughter for some unknown, maybe insane reason. The police simply couldn't prove it. Certainly there was a lack of physical clues, no bloodstains, no fingerprints, no signed confessions. But the more I thought about it, the more I began to see major gaps in the investigation. Beyond a fixation on Mrs McLeod, there was apparently no in-depth examination of the family, their characters, their relationships, and the possibility of domestic secrets. Importantly, as I've hinted before, Mrs McLeod was not the only target of anonymous letter writers. Suspicions also fell on Norma's brother, Rhys McLeod. Where was he in all of this? And what about Norma's father? What do we really know of his movements? Join us next time as we look into the lives of the family, starting with Norma and her mother. In the meantime, some things to think about. What's your impression of the Asmodeus letter? Do you think the police case against Mrs McLeod has merit? Why do you think Norma McLeod hired a private detective? Have I missed anything? Remember, if you want to share your thoughts, contact me by email anytime. Emma at murderarchives.com.au Hi, I'm Amelia Ball, editor of Halliday Wine Companion magazine, and you can join me for our brand new Halliday podcast as we rummage through cellars and get the experts' knowledge you need to get the most out of your cellar. Taking a bottle of wine, putting it into a cool, dark place for a long time, crossing all your fingers and toes, and it coming out beautiful. Uh, we recently sold one for $300,000. Hear the Halliday Wine Companion podcast where you're listening now, or go to winecompanion.com.au.